Welcome to Naturistic, a podcast focusing on ecology, evolution, plants and animals. I'm Nash Turley, a biologist, and each episode I research a specific subject and present what I've learned to my co-host, Hamilton Boyce. This episode we discuss owls. Hey there, Hamilton Boyce. Hello, Nash Turley. How are you? Well, it's been busy. We've it's been a while since the last episode and uh, moved to a new apartment and lots of other stuff going on. So um, lots of stuff that no one even <laughs> remotely cares about <laughs> that we will yeah. skip right over. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I do have one question for you, though. Yeah. Have you. So we the last time we talked, you had never seen Twin Peaks, and then you sent me a quote from Twin Peaks, which to me implied yeah. that you had started watching it. Yeah, I I watched the first season. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, it was cool. Definitely, you know, I liked the the weirdness, and there were references to owls. Yeah, w- which is our topic for today. Yeah, though I uh, didn't make it to where presumably it sounded like there was going to be some explanation of these. Uh, references to owls that I did not get to. Once it got to season two, it started feeling more like a horror movie. And yeah. that was, I wasn't really, I didn't really like that. Yeah. Because uh, I don't like those vibes. Right. It still wasn't anything bad about it, but I just kind of stopped watching because just don't really like that vibe. But yeah, maybe I mean, I'll season the one is, is the classic. Season two is is hit or miss like it gets into some weird zones but like by the end of it um david lynch comes back and the creator uh the creators come back and they're like oh we should probably like make this watchable again for a while before we stop okay but uh yeah no if you think that there's ever any kind of explanations about anything in twin peaks then you obviously are not very well versed (laughs) in twin peaks (laughs) sure yeah i yeah uh i think there is a sense that some of this stuff was going to come to some conclusions and then season one ended. It's like, well, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, so, they explain some stuff, but, um, not, it's not a given, but it's cool to see, you know, just kind of be in the Pacific Northwest and just weird, weird people doing weird stuff. Yeah. Do you have, um, any, uh, firsthand experiences with owls? I do. They are my friends. Uh, no, <laughs> um, no, I've seen a handful of owls in, in the wild. Um, not as many as I would like, but, um, I think like the first period of time when I was starting to bird, I just never saw any. And then I, I think I finally like saw one in discovery park. And then like from there, um, started seeing them every once in a while. Um, but yeah, there is one story, which I think I had mentioned to you before where we were out at Nisqually Wildlife Refuge and there was like uh, a, a seasoned birder who was looking at something in a tree um, and we were like tiptoeing up and it was kind of like, I don't want to interrupt you, but also tell me your secrets. <laughs> um, and so she was like, she was like, <laughs> oh tell yeah. Tell me your secrets. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So um, she was like, oh yeah, there's a, there's nesting owls up here. So we got to see some little little baby owl heads popping their heads up out of the nest up in the tree nook. And, um, and yeah, that was, that was pretty exciting. That was the most exciting one. Then another one was Beacon Hill, um, our old neighborhood. We were on a little run and we ran up to the top of these stairs and there was like a fence right there. Um, kind of at the end of this little green belt. 
and uh, there was an owl just staring directly into our eyes, into our soul. And, uh, and then we were like, Oh, and I was like, going to try and get my phone and take a picture. And I was fumbling. And by the time I had anything ready, it was, it had just sort of soared off on its own. But, um, it was, it was pretty cool to have that up and close, you know, up close and personal, like face to face with an owl. You got the, you know, the binocular vision looking right at you. Yeah. It seems like that's really the key trait that makes them so iconic. I think just the face totally with the two front facing eyes. Um, that reminds me of a joke, Tickle Me Elmo, um, not Tickle Me Elmo, Furby, that if you look at Furby, it has binocular front facing vision, which means Furby is a predator. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah, that is a reason why they seemed so unsettling, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's no... Only predators have that type of vision. So, huh. yeah, you know, most most animals that are eating plants that are afraid of getting eaten have their eyes on the side of their heads more. That's cool. Because I never thought about that. They don't really need the binocular vision to find their food. Yeah. Because it's a plant, but they need the extra field of view to see predators coming. So, yeah, that's cool. So the wider someone's eyes are, the less dangerous they are <laughs> if we want to get to pure uh f- what is it phrenetics or Frene- yeah. phrenology <laughs> something like that yeah my i think my most notable owl experience was at discovery park which you mentioned which is in seattle and uh, i was out tracking song sparrows on a project we both worked on you, you know poking around the woods with this antennae listening for beeps uh trying to triangulate th- this tiny little bird and I just kind of ended up underneath this big cedar tree. And there were two barn, uh, not barn, barred owls calling to each other. And they are known for saying, who cooks for you? It's something like that. Nice. <laughs> Nicely done. And they were, there were two in two different groups doing it, like calling to each other. And they were so focused on calling to each other that they just didn't seem to care about (laughs) my presence at all that's cool so i ended up standing right underneath one of them and i like dropped the antenna and made all this noise and it looked right down at me and was on a branch only like five feet above my head and looked straight down at me just binocular vision right into my soul and then just looked back up and started calling again didn't care (laughs) that i was there at all like this this clumsy guy just dropping stuff he is not (laughs) he is not a threat to me yeah Oh, uh, sorry, Mr. Owl. Glavin. Ah. <laughs> 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 I, I one other time I saw a great gray owl, the largest owl in the world in uh, eastern Washington. I was riding a bike like on a trail in the woods and came around a corner and also looked right at me and huh. then just majestically soared off. Great. Really cool. That's great. Also, a couple of days ago, I spotted a barred owl again down here in Florida. Nice. Uh, out bird watching like at dawn at this park and right at the parking lot the first bird we saw i looked at like this tree line right outside the gravel parking lot and there was a barred owl just sitting on a branch (laughs) blending in and its eyes were closed until i got a little bit closer and it opened up Uh, but didn't fly away just sat there nice good morning or i don't know good night i guess (laughs) bar bard i believe are well i've seen them flying around in the day but i still think they're they're probably among the more nocturnal ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the, I think barred owl, if I remember correctly, was the one that we saw on that jog. And that was, you know, I don't know, late afternoon or something. So 
I mean, not that one sighting is <laughs> a representation <laughs> of behavior, but... Um, you want to get into some hard and heavy owl facts? Yes. Lay them on me. A couple resources, a uh, little bit of a different format because we're just covering owls like in general. This was a, a request episode. So normally we're kind of covering like a species or something or something more specific. So we do got a more general factoids. And I was looking at the Sibley Guide to Bird Life and Behavior and uh, and just some like owl fact blog posts and stuff. Yeah. Owlfacts.net. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Live Science is a page in Live Science. And it's got science in the name. So, you know, it must be legit. <laughs> <laughs> we I think I used them for some zombie ant references. They pretty much always cite primary sources even though they kind of still have like clickbaity stuff right they still seem to cite primary stuff so i find them pretty legit yeah so owls are predatory birds of course and they are in one specific order which is sort of one uh, yeah what is order is actually not a super common um taxonomic unit yeah it's a it's a taxonomic unit above family and it's called the strigiformes so all owls are in the strigiformes and of course they have, you know, the big forward facing eyes and downturned bills and a unique trait among, or somewhat unique trait among birds is that they're called zygodactyl, meaning they have two toes facing forward and two toes facing back. Or if you think of most birds, they have three forward and one back, mm-hmm. but they, there are some other birds that are that way as well, like woodpeckers and parrots and stuff. And within the order strigiformes, there are two families. There is the uh, barn owls, which is the Tetonidae, which has about 20 species. Um, and they're all pretty similar and they're, they're all somewhat similar to what, um, might be familiar to people in North America as the barn owl, uh, Tito Alba is that one. Yeah. So they're about a three foot wingspan. Um, and they do not have ear tufts. They have a very heart shaped face. And, uh, that's kind of the vibe of all barn owls. Uh, most of this, most of those twenty species are in Asia, Asia and Australia. So the one, the one that we have in North America is the barn owl. Yeah, I mean the common name of the one we know is barn owl. But yeah. Also, the common name of the whole group is the barn owls. Right. Probably named after that one species, just because it's in. It's actually one of the more widespread animals in the world, Tito alba. Um, the one that's in North America is also basically everywhere in the world. Cool. They f- they just fly wherever they want to go. Yeah. And yeah, barn owls don't have like the, the hoot sounds that we normally associate with owls. They make like kind of harsh clicks and screams and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I once uh, at a wild animal rehabilitation center that I volunteered at uh, had the pleasure and horror of cleaning out and feeding a barn owl. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I would go into it. It was like a, you know, the, the cage like the size of a small bathroom and it would just be sitting up on like a dowel up you know up towards the ceiling and he'd walk in and need to just like clean up the poop and change the water and stuff and it would start holding its wings out and rocking its head back and forth it was really creepy and bobbing its head and then snapping its beak like <laughs> oh god <laughs> really really spooky and i was like man i gotta get out of here <laughs> give you your dead mice and <laughs> book it out of here <laughs> yeah what, do you know what that was? Was that a defense thing or just like uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just uh It just achieved its goal of just freaking you out. Yeah. You know, like if if you're if one's nesting in a 
you know, a shelter or barn or something, they'll, they'll do that to keep you away from their nest and mm-hmm. stuff. Mission accomplished. Totally. Uh, it's amazing how something that, you know, probably weighs like a pound and a half or less can freak you out so much. Totally. <laughs> but it, you know, even at, you know, their weight doesn't mean they couldn't mess you up. They got huge claws and stuff. Talents. Yeah. So the, the other family are the typical owls, which is the Strigidae. And there's about 200 species of those. So m- most of the diversity is there. Right. And they, uh, they vary a lot. They have the smallest and the largest owl. Uh, the smallest owl in the world is the Whitney's elf owl, which is lives in the Sonoran Desert hmm. down in Arizona and northern Mexico. Not, and in, about, not in Santa's workshop? <laughs> unfortunately, no. Okay. Uh, there are other elf owls, though. Uh, I don't know if there's any up north, but... Um, they're another northern small owl, which we'll talk about later. Okay. Uh, they're about a 10-inch or 25-centimeter wingspan and weigh about 40 grams, which is pretty comparable to the size of a song sparrow. That is very light, lightweight. Yeah. And yeah, so it's definitely worth, if anyone's interested, in looking at a photo of these. They're super cute, but I've all the photos, I just couldn't really get a good sense of how small they really were until mm-hmm. I compared the mass to a sparrow. And I was like, wow, this really is just the same size as a sparrow. <laughs> it's, it's wild. Yeah. Like maybe like a, a Cadbury egg or something. <laughs> <laughs> that probably weighs more than 40 grams. I mean, 40 grams, birds are insanely light. Right. As far as size, I guess maybe a little larger and a little lighter. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, like the size of a coffee cup, maybe <laughs> <sighs> roughly something like that. Coffee cup, huh? That's a, I don't know. I, that's a just big... the thing I had next to me that, that looked about the right size. <laughs> uh, are we talking uh, venti or? <laughs> I don't. I don't know what those different sizes mean. But anyway, start, start sizing birds based on a Starbucks cup sizes. <laughs> yeah. So the the largest owl is the size of three grande mocha cappuccinos. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the great gray owl. That has about a five foot or 1.5 meter wingspan. Um, and even with that, it weighs about 120 grams or two and a half pounds. So yeah, the heaviest owls only still only two and a half pounds. Yeah. It's very kind of surprising. Like kind of, if you were in a contest to guess the weight of the largest owl, you would probably lose. I mean, when I say you, I'm more referring to like probably myself. <laughs> <laughs> the royal you. <laughs> Thou. Yeah. Among the typical owls, the Strigidae, there's all sorts that specialize in all sorts of different types of habitats, like snowy owls, of course, which are all about living in the Arctic tundra, Um, burrowing owls and short-eared owls, which specialize on grasslands, Um, northern hawk owl, which lives in boreal forest, and lots of forest species like barred owl, screech owl. Um, So most habitats in the world, there's, there's an owl around. An owl for every occasion. (laughs) Would you say that they are highly adaptable? Well, yes, but I would challenge anyone to find any group of animals that could not be where that statement would not apply. (laughs) Right. Especially if you're going as a large of a group as order. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could you could pick a weird thing that's like a a species that lives only on one um, Pacific island or something, and then you'd maybe have a decent argument that. And then you'd be like, got you. (laughs) Burn. (laughs) So uh, I think they are pretty well known for some of their incredible feeding and hunting habitats, or not habitats, uh, behaviors. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
for hunting, they are super quiet uh, because they sneak up on prey. And one of the ways they can fly and be so silent is the leading edge of their wings has these super, super fuzzy feathers that are almost downy feathers that, I mean, I guess, to be honest, I don't really understand the physics of it, but I guess if you're just kind of pushing something really soft and fuzzy through the air, it doesn't disrupt the air and make noise. Yeah, and it absorbs the sound waves that it's making. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're going to like swing a tennis racket through the air versus a fuzzy pool noodle. Then, right, uh, like would you rather sneak up on someone in chain mail or a <laughs> giant fluffy coat? <laughs> yeah, they are the fluffy coat sneakers. <laughs> yeah. And owls are some of the most acute hearing animals and the barn owl specifically one old paper had quote the most acute said the barn owl had the most acute hearing of any animal tested any animal period in the world yeah at least it's been tested snap yeah i can't think of any animals that would have better hearing that they would have not tested (laughs) right i'm I'm sure there's an insect that beats it but how do you test it hearing of an insect so yeah You're like, uh, wink when you hear this certain sine wave pitch. (laughs) Yeah. Secrete a gnarly pheromone (laughs) that makes my eyes water. (laughs) Takes nearly their whole lifespan to teach it to them, but then they can finally do it. Right. There are some pretty wild experiments that have tested um, the ability of insects to sense pheromones. And they're kind of grisly, but they basically put electrical... Uh, what's the word? I don't know. A thing that can measure electrical impulses in their brain Mm -hmm. um, that they know where the nerve impulses are that attach their antennae. So they can basically tell when the antennae are being stimulated and then they can release their known pheromone into the air and uh, test very, you know, the lowest threshold that they can detect that, which is way more sensitive than any machine we have. Oh, wow. And they've even used this grisly little bionic moth to find other moths like if they want to find the female they can rig up a little telemetry system with the with the male moth and its antennae to like track it down huh that's very sci-fi and also like it's really impressive and it's also sort of diabolical totally so one of the things that makes owl hearing really incredible in addition to how sensitive is is how accurate it can be in terms of uh, locating things in space And one way that owls do that is they have asymmetrical ear openings, which just means that the ear on the left side of their head is higher on their skull than on the right side of their head. And for a lot of owls, if you look at their skull, you can actually see it. They're just kind of slanted. So the ear hole is just up and, you know, on an angle. Yeah. Do you look at a lot of owl skulls? Um, Yeah, like eight or nine hours a day normally. (laughs) It's just kind of calm, calming. Right. just sort of like a hobby, just, you know, nothing weird about it. Yeah. And I blindfold myself and challenge myself to identify the species just by feel. <laughs> right. <laughs> Getting pretty good. Yeah. So the asymmetrical openings allow for advanced depth perception in hearing. So when you think of hearing, and, and we do this just as well. So the way in which we can tell the location, basically like left or right of a sound is your brain, you know, the the sound reaches, if it's coming from the left, it'll reach your left ear first, the sound. And then a tiny amount of time later, it'll reach your right ear. And your brain 
calculates the difference and can estimate the direction based on that differential in time. Mm -hmm. And so there's always that left and right ability. But if you also have them asymmetrical, then you get kind of like that's like the X, Y axis, where if you have the asymmetrical, you also get a Z axis of an extra level of dimensionality of space based on kind of the up and down. Yeah. So that's something that helps them be able to hunt prey in total darkness and pinpoint the exact location of prey purely by sound. Very cool. There is uh, some pretty amazing visuals of owls that hunt through snow and you know they'll hear a mouse like scurrying under the snow. Uh, of course, they can't see it at all, but they'll hear them and they'll dive down and they'll plunge their talons through the snow and then their wings are spread out with the the you know the fingers of their primary feathers all out on the snow so it's basically like this angel of death snow angel yeah plunked down onto the snow it's really cool it's like a little snowshoe of death yeah so once they once owls catch their prey uh they very often just gobble down their uh their prey hole uh when you see an owl you just kind of see the very tip of their beak but their beaks are often really wide so they can really chow down on some big stuff but sometimes they'll also kind of pull off the head or legs and stuff first if if they're having a bad day yeah either way they normally eat it all and if they're eating all this fur and bones and stuff that they can't really digest the way they deal with that is they all that stuff gets caught up in a part of their stomach um, and turns into a pellet and then they regurgitate this pellet of like crushed up bones and feathers and stuff owl pellet and those uh those pellets have been used to study owl feeding quite a bit because you can just dissect them and find you know what mammals and what birds they've been eating do you remember the owl pellets that we found that had song sparrow tracking bands in them yeah yeah that was uh barred owls um so all the all the birds that we were tracking had leg bands and um some of them also had little radio backpacks on them. Transmitters so that we could track them. Yeah. So then we tracked them to not a bird, but an owl pellet. <laughs> yeah. One of the pellets just had the, tra- it had the backpack in it, right? The transmit, the transmitter. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think one, at least, if not a couple of them, that's how we found them was the transmitters <laughs> still yeah. functioning. Right. Yeah. Impressive. And yeah, so the experience of tracking a bird would just be, you'd be trying triangulating it and eventually it'd be like, it really does not seem like it's moving. And then I believe there was just like a spot where like, this seems to be where the pellets always ended up is under this, you know, big cedar tree or something. So I guess that's where they like to like to regurgitate their pellets. <laughs> it's a good regurgitation spot. Oh yeah. The best, the best. It's hard to get a table. It's busy, <laughs> but you know, if you can get in. There's no better place in the Pacific Northwest to puke up some song sparrow bones. Yeah. Great atmosphere. You know, the the service is good. You know, they kind of just leave you alone, (laughs) let you do your thing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's pleasurable for an owl, the process of regurgitating a pellet? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like... (laughs) That's sort of a joke question, but I feel like the concept of like pleasure is kind of interesting to look at with animals because it's like how much is just like raw instinct and how much is calculated and how much like how you know is there enjoyment getting you know from certain activities or is it just like some species have pleasure some don't i don't know it's kind of interesting yeah i think it's fairly arrogant to assume that most animals don't feel pleasure and pain and stuff yeah 
maybe arrogance, not the right word, naive at best, uh, because the animals we know well, I think most people feel pretty sure that cats and dogs and stuff experience things like that. Mm -hmm. So why, why would it just stop with the things we don't live in our houses? Right. Just the, the uh, infinite quest for humans to say like X, Y, Z is what separates humans from the animals. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then every and, time they're like, well, <laughs> that's actually not true, but you know, whatever. Just if right. you need that to feel good about yourself, then that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's exactly it. And there are so many attempts for people to start off a new book or research paper of like, humans are the only animal to do blank. <laughs> right. And that's just, always 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 wrong <laughs> especially you know there was a, a a book on animal behavior i read that basically the whole thesis was to continually debunk those things but a common one was self-awareness they just really thought that only humans could do that and then eventually they came up with this simple test where you basically just put like a dot of paint on an animal and give it a mirror yeah and see if it like finds the dot of paint and like a bunch of animals do yeah. <laughs> they just like keep finding new animals that pass the self-awareness test. Yeah. And then they're and they're now even like, well, even ones that don't, there's other reasons why they might not that don't right. necessarily imply that they're not self-aware too. Yeah, it's like it's a it, it's a test that can have false negatives. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh breeding. Got a couple owl breeding facts. Ooh. They um they tend to incubate their eggs for about a month. Which I guess incubate just means like sit on them in the nest. Hmm. Um, and typically the female owl uh, will incubate the eggs and the male will bring food to her on the nest. Mm -hmm. And the way they lay their eggs results in a fairly grisly thing called obligate siblicide. Mm. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> I think this is a connection to uh, maybe this is the the deep required knowledge to fully understand the reference to owls in Twin Peaks is oh, the behavior okay. of obligate civilicide. That's oh. my thesis. I like that. <laughs> giving, Are there any like some... no notable brother sisters in the in the show? Oh, there's the sisters, right? Or the, maybe they're cousins. Yeah, the cousin. Close enough. Yeah, I mean, if that's not if that doesn't get filed under civilicide, then. They're too strict. <laughs> so so what happens is um, owls tend to lay their eggs sort of over kind of on a fairly long, uh, what am I trying to say? One after another over a pretty long period of time or relatively. Mm -hmm. And so that means that they also then hatch not all at once they over a period of time. So one will hatch while the others are still in their egg. Right. In series. And so, yeah. And so what often happens is the one that hatches first will pretty frequently end up murdering and eating the younger siblings in the nest. All of them. Uh, well, sometimes it, it all depends on how much food is available. Yeah. So if the adults are getting enough food, then it's not necessary. But if they're low on food, then the bigger ones will eat the younger ones. And so this is thought to be an evolutionary strategy it's kind of like a, a bet hedging so that if there's really lots of voles or whatever for to feed the chicks, then they'll all survive. But if there's not much, then then at least one will survive because it'll survive partially off of eating their siblings. Brutal. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from a math standpoint, it sounds <laughs> sounds about right. Crunch the numbers. <laughs> Makes you kind of, um, I don't know, 
look at sibling relationships and human sibling relationships in a slightly different light. Yeah. You're like, is it is it more that like even if the older one is a bully, at least he didn't murder, murder and, and eat, eat your you. flesh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. See that. <laughs> Owl conservation. So as almost always, there there's some some bad news, but all but not all bad news. But many owls have been negatively impacted by habitat loss, especially the forest ones, um, by logging old growth forest and things like that. Mm-hmm. There are some species that do pretty well in and around people, like um, barn owl, barred owl, eastern screech owl, things like that. And I'm sure those ones, those are all North American ones, other ones. And But some of them are doing, you know, the ones that are specialized on types of habitats that are rare, not surprisingly, have also rare, like burrowing owls and short-eared owls, which are both tend to live in grasslands. And as we've, as we've talked about in previous episodes, grasslands are pretty um, threatened, and so are the owls that specialize on those habitats. Mm-hmm. Uh, one notable endangered owl in North America is the spotted owl, uh, which is uh, lives in the Pacific Northwest and specifically likes old-growth forest. And has had, you know, lots of butting heads with the logging industry and stuff. Yeah. But then another threat to them more recently is hybridization with the barred owl because they're in the same genus. So Mm. as barred owls have become more common, they can sometimes hybridize. And then that starts getting really tricky (laughs) conservation issues when you're, you know, maybe losing some of the genetic stock of those endangered species yeah totally that's a tricky one yeah and then you're like is that a spot or a bar i can't, I can't tell <laughs> right it's kind of an oval like, sort of like a wide bar i don't know man this is tough and then a lot have been impacted by pesticides and things um because as we learned about in the bald eagle episode insecticides and things can accumulate up the food chain um, and, and owls have been Im- impacted by that, but they're also particularly Im- impacted by rodenticides because those are used all over the place as well, um, mm. in agriculture and households, all sorts of things. So yeah, a lot of those types will, you know, some rodenticides like basically encourage a rodent to find water. So it like will run out of your house and then it'll just be like out in nature and then it can just get chomped by an owl and then you've just poisoned an owl. Hmm. And then the owl goes out and finds water and gets eaten by a mouse. <laughs> right. Circle of life. It's a rough way to go. <laughs> eaten by a mouse. Uh, so that wraps up a, a a crude crash course of some more or less random owl factoids. So we're going to take a little break and come back uh, to look at a specific experiment on an owl. All right. And more on that right after this. Alrighty, welcome back, Mr. Hamilton Forest Boyce. Welcome back, Nash Turley, and welcome back, all of you listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all of you fine listeners on this owl episode today. We have got an owl experiment that I tracked down. Not for any particular reason, this. I mostly just kind of wanted to look at some detailed, you know, kind of a detailed way in which some owl ecology had been studied, and this one popped up. 
It's by um, Mason et al. in the journal Biological Conservation 2016. And it is about how noise pollution impacts saw wet owl hunting. That sounds like you're hunting saw wet owls. <laughs> like, man, it's too loud. I can't catch these owls. <laughs> right. You keep scaring them off with your loud sounds. So um, noise pollution, what, what comes to mind when you hear that? Noise pollution, what comes to mind is... Rock and roll ain't noise pollution, for example? Uh, is that a, a musical reference? <laughs> that is an ACDC song. Oh, nice. Um, no, that is not what comes to mind because I just <laughs> learned about that right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, just sit, you know, urban sounds, cars, airplanes, uh, machinery, freeways are real loud as it turns yeah. out. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> sirens, all sorts of things are, yeah. are out there. And I think, you know, if you just search noise pollution, a lot of what you'll find is more about like human health and well-being and stuff for mm -hmm. good reason. I think there's more and more research showing that noise pollution is like any other form of pollution, bad for our health and yeah. well-being. But of course, I guess also like all other forms of pollution, it's also can be pretty bad for non-human organisms. Right. There is some growing evidence of that more generally. So um, one study of these like loud noises from natural gas extraction sites found that these chronic loud noises can reduce abundance and diversity of songbirds by about a third, which is pretty gnarly. Yeah, that's a lot for for noise. Yeah. And other study looked at traffic noise seeming to really cause a lot of species, bird species to not show up in areas. Um, so pretty, you know, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a ton of research on it, but seems like a pretty consistent pattern that it is affecting bird behavior and other animal behavior. Yeah. I've heard uh, studies of noise pollution affecting like pitch of bird calls and things like that. Like right. noisier populations will drift their, the pitches of their songs up or down or whatever. I feel like usually up to kind of yeah get out of the range of, of white noise overlap and stuff like that. Yeah. It's pretty cool in nature. There tends to be like a lot of, um, the idea of the niche, which just like the specific habitats that organisms use, also seems to apply to noise. So one kind of somewhat hippie-ish hypothesis, but I think has been maybe tested, is that a really healthy, diverse ecosystem, if you go out and make high-quality recordings of it, you will have organisms that fill basically all of the sound spectrums, mm. meaning that all of the evolved organisms to fit in that system are all there using up all of the available noise space because they've all evolved to use different pitches at different times. So they're not competing with each other. Yeah. That is very cool. I like that. Yeah. That's also how you get a good, uh, a good mix and music. Yeah. Good arrangement, you know? Um, so this book and, uh, I don't remember the name of it. I'll try to put it in the, um, the, the show notes that's on, uh, our website, naturistic.science, put all the references for each episode there. But there's a book I read that was um, this guy who was a music producer. And the start of the book starts, you know, he was like in the uh, classic rock era. He worked with the Doors and a bunch of other things. 
And he just kind of got sick of the music industry and he just started applying his knowledge of recording to recording nature and going out and testing these ideas about organisms filling up niche space and, and assessing the biodiversity of regions just by using sound and things like that. Uh, You're not cool talking thing. Bernie Krause, are you? Um, maybe. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. He um, fits that description. He yeah. started out as a music guy and then switched into doing n- nature recording. And he would just go out and like, he'd be like, I'm just going to record what this environment sounds like what this ecosystem sounds like and he just sort of was a pioneer for developing techniques to record natural environments in a way that like was a good representation of how they sounded um with all the different kind of working working pieces and parts and stuff like that and um yeah he has a he has a book that i have um i want to say it's into the wild but um Mm -hmm. That's another thing. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Book. Notes from the Wild. Yeah. Um, which includes a audio album of a bunch of recordings that he did, which are really awesome. Super cool yeah. to listen to. Like you feel like you're there. Is it possible that I read that and then gave it to you? Sure. Yeah. I don't. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's what happened yeah cool. seems yeah, very likely i don't remember buying it or anything <laughs> most things that i get are given to me by you anyway so <laughs> yeah cool yeah good while there is quite a bit of research on like just just probably just because it's easier to do how noise impacts what animals show up in places there's less known about how it affects their behavior um, and particularly even less known about how it affects the behavior of predators so the goal of this study was to look at northern sawwet owls and how noise impacts their ability to catch mice. But, you know, this is one of the disappointing things about a lot of scientific papers these days. It doesn't even talk about northern sawwet owls. So <laughs> let's let's remedy that. They are insanely cute. <laughs> they are um uh yeah, I actually have some photos here. So they're they're kind of like they can definitely fit on top of your hand and they're kind of brown and speckled with huge bright orange eyes. Yeah. Pretty small. There was one that showed up, uh, made a bunch of, um, internet stories over Christmas because it was in the Christmas tree in central park or Brooklyn square. What's the place? Times square. Yeah. Um, the tree they always bring it. It just had the solid owl in it. <laughs> that is fantastic. So, yeah. And when they're juveniles, they look really weird. They're like brown head and golden body with this like white cross on their forehead. And um, when I worked at the same wildlife rehabilitation place, all the people there would always call the Sawad owls baby Jesus. (laughs) And I don't really know why, but I think it's just because they look so, even though they were tiny, they seemed important and majestic. Yeah. Um, they just seemed powerful and important. So didn't you say that they had a cross on their forehead? Yeah, that might've been it too. Yeah. That, you know, the, the juveniles have this like why maybe more of a why, but it's, it's cross like, so that might be it too. And yeah, so they're about 65 to 150 grams. Um, so up to 5.3 ounces and a wingspan of about 19 inches, 48 centimeters. So yeah, pretty compact. (laughs) Hmm. They live throughout. Bite-sized. Yeah, they live throughout U.S. and southern Canada, and they're particularly fond of mature forest 
um, you know, mix of deciduous and conifer trees. Though they do really like hanging out in conifer branches during the day. They'll like be out towards the end of the branches really hiding in the needles. Um, so they're very, very difficult to see in the wild. Unless they're in a public Christmas tree. <laughs> right. Uh, and they feed mostly on very small mammals. Uh, that's their main food, but they do sometimes catch small birds as well. And apparently they have the highest level of ear asymmetry of any owl. So they seem to be like maximum locating spatial arrangements with their e- hearing. One is on the top of their head and the other is <laughs> on their chin. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. They, I think they primarily listen through on one side out of the cloaca and then the other side just out of their left eyeball. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, not to go off topic, um, but I feel like you had mentioned on the first pass of this recording that um, their facial kind of structure was used as a little kind of listening cone, owls in general. Right. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So... When we think of owls, they often have that kind of flat face, particularly like barn owls and great gray owls. Some of them have more than others, but the big flat disc of feathers on the front of their face is uh, also functional and then it kind of directs this. It's like a big megaphone kind of, or the opposite of a megaphone, I don't know, that catches sound and directs it into their ear holes because they don't have like cartilage ears so their feathers sort of function as the the sound gathering device yeah pretty fancy pretty fancy stuff uh yeah your your reference to the first pass we we did a a version of this that had a a sound issue so this is our second time our first our first time doing an episode for the second time (laughs) (laughs) gotta Uh, have some first i take 100 percent responsibility for that for recording (laughs) audio from my laptop microphone which coincidentally sounds <laughs> terrible um and i thought i was using the microphone the whole time until nash was like hey uh do you have a, another version of this audio and i was like uh oh that does not sound good but anyway it was not not a great question it was not the it was not the most uh action-packed recording that we've done so maybe it worked yeah. out okay yeah this one's this one's better i think so no worries this one's slipping and sliding with excitement yeah, we I got to mention cloacas. You know. <laughs> <laughs> do, do people know what cloacas are? Uh, uh, probably. probably. I mean, if you're listening <laughs> to this, you probably do. <laughs> it is the one action-packed hole of a bird and a reptile that does it all. All the sex, all the feces, all from one place. Yeah. That's and the cloaca. if there were pee, that's where it would be. Yeah. That's what, uh, that's what I like to say. <laughs> yeah, bird birds do have nitrogenous waste, which is what I like to call pee, because that's what it is. Hmm. Um, and they, so we get rid of, mammals get rid of nitrogenous waste by a method that is uh, water soluble. And so we can just get rid of it with water. And it's a lot less energy intensive to do it, but you need all that water to do it. But birds do it in a different way. And it creates an oily um, substance. Um, and that's what the white part of bird poop is, is the pee, basically. That's the, their nitrogenous waste, is the white part. Hmm. 
How come they don't they don't get the yellow? What what happened there? Well, it's a different substance. So uh, I I was dodging trying to say the names of them because I don't quite remember them. <laughs> it's, it's okay. No one, one of cares. them is urea, and one of them is uric acid or something. But yeah. it's a it's a different nitrogen comes in many different forms, right. and it's just a different form, okay. and it's not water soluble. Yeah, and for whatever reason, it's this oily, you know, white stuff. Um, it takes a lot less water, which cuts down on their weight, which is obviously good if you're going to fly, yeah. but it takes a lot more energy. So pretty much everything birds do is like super energy intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of the bird way. <laughs> it's the bird way, which is why they like <laughs> to eat lots of animals whole. Yeah. And just nonstop eating yeah. all the time. I mean, the bird life is basically like eat nonstop or die. Dang. <laughs> basically. <laughs> Especially, you know, birds that overwinter in cold places. Yeah. I've heard of studies that like show that like a sparrow overwintering in Canada, they have to like find a seed every 52 seconds or they die. basically. Like on average. That is like, Um, oh man, what happened to Jeff? Like, oh, he didn't find a seed last minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's dead now. He, he (laughs) took a nap and now he's dead. Yeah, and the, the energy to stay warm is pretty intense, too. The really classic book, um, The Sand County Almanac, has one thing that I really remember. Because uh, it's just kind of detailing the, just the ability for a chickadee to survive in Wisconsin over the winter, the brutal cold winter. And he did these little experiments where he'd put up um, a trap. Um, I don't even think it was a trap. It was more just like a little tunnel that had bird, bird seed in it. Mm-hmm. And if it faced the tunnel in such a way that they um, never had to turn their back to the wind, then they would go in and get the seed. But if they had to turn their back to the wind, they would never go in because that would, you know, just the wind blowing up into their feathers might chill them enough that it would kill them. <laughs> wow. So you basically always have a chickadee over winter is life or death to face into the wind so they don't freeze to death. That's how I feel when I'm like in uh on the East coast during winter and I'm outside. Yeah. It's like, I would go into that Carl's junior, but you know, the, the door's facing the wind. So <laughs> I'd rather just skip it altogether. I'm going to change my plans for the day. I mean, I heard they had a veggie burger, but you know, guess I can't try <laughs> Carl's junior. <laughs> I did. I do like to uh, use the McDonald's in Brooklyn as my, uh, as my ATM because okay. uh, I have a, like a true yuppie hippie asshole. I have a credit union, so um, there's not like a ton of credit unions around, but yeah, most same. of the McDonald's there for some reason have um, credit union uh, ATMs oh. in them. So huh. okay. do a lot of, like do a lot of hanging out in McDonald's <laughs> <laughs> and I have to like look around and like make sure. No one who I think is going to judge me for going in. <laughs> for not for not buying anything or or not, I don't know. Just my vanity of not there. thinking that people, not wanting people to think that I'm a McDonald's attendee, whatever, never mind. So these uh, Sawat owls, uh, so we learned a little bit about Sawat owls. Uh, in the area where they live, there's a lot of oil and gas extraction. And these have compressor stations, which is basically like they're pumping 
the natural gas out and they need to pressurize the pipeline or the like to make it into the pipeline or something like that. So there's basically just this big compressor running nonstop that makes a bunch of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really full frequency, quite loud. And uh, kind of like acro- a <laughs> maybe <laughs> I didn't get any sound samples, but well, let's go with that. Okay. Um, and in the, in the field where they're doing lots of natural gas extraction, basically the whole area can be impacted by the sound. And, um, let's see, I thought I noted where this, oh yeah, Boise State University. So I believe this study was done in Idaho somewhere. So the questions of the study was, um, does this background noise reduce the owl's ability to detect, strike, and catch prey? So sort of three different aspects of the hunting process. Mm-hmm. Um, and the overall sort of summary of what they did is they would catch owls and put them in these flight tents where they, they know that there's no light. And then they do playback of the noises that are recordings from these compressors and, and vary the volumes and things, and then measure aspects of their hunting ability. That's kind of the, the broad overview of what they do. Mm-hmm. And just because I like to, uh, a few more specifics of what they do. They ended up going out and capturing 12 owls total um, using mist nets. Uh, what's, a, what's a mist net? A mist net is a giant tennis net style uh, piece of equipment that biologists use to put in uh, the woods or wherever in a bird habitat. And they basically wait for birds to like it's basically invisible it's like these super thin um dark threads and they have these kind of rows that have pockets in them so birds will you can scare them in or trick them in or just wait for them to fly in if it's somewhere that's on their normal route um and then they kind of hit the net and they sort of like fall down into these little pockets and they kind of get like their feathers sort of tangled up and it sounds fairly unpleasant and I don't know, it probably is <laughs> fairly unpleasant, but yeah. generally not harmful. Um, unless something horribly goes wrong, which occasionally does, but we won't go into that anyway. Uh, <laughs> so then the, you know, then the biologist can like take the, take the bird in a nice friendly grip that, uh, it can't escape from and sort of untangle it from the net and then they'll go off and do whatever, usually put it in a little bag and for transport or something so they don't freak out. And then, uh, then they can do experiments on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I probably the, the most common use of mist nets that's done very widely is banding birds. So there's many bird banding stations that are set up normally during migration that are set up in the same spots every year, which provide a lot of the basic data for understanding bird migration and how often they survive and they'll just catch birds, put a unique identifying band on them and let them go. And they do it year after year after year and see if they recatch the same birds and stuff like that. So, uh, that's a cool thing that if anyone really wants to get into bird stuff, there's always bird banding stations that uh, you can go volunteer at and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, I forget if I mentioned this or not, but there's, um, there's that Netflix show connected, um, that uh that guy from radio lab latif nasser um mm. he is the host of it's his show and there's one okay. episode i think the first episode um they have a, a scene where they're with a guy who's a biologist who's 
uh, catching birds in a mist net. So I was like, all right, yeah. mist nets have made it to the silver uh-huh. screen finally. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know if any other, I mean, maybe there are, but I don't know of any other, uh, I don't know, captures of mist nets. Uh, also, um, in that same series, there's a, a thing about um, using facial recognition on pigs as a way to identify individuals instead of having to do other like they don't mention i don't think they mentioned the um like banding birds but like they have ways of tagging like pig ears and stuff but it always involves like doing some physical thing to like you know livestock basically like doing some physical thing to them like puncturing their ear with something and then they have to like manhandle them and catch them and stuff um so they just like put up a little camera at their trough and then whenever they come up they just like use crazy computer facial recognition software and they're like getting pretty good at iding individuals through that so anyway just like a random sidebar Hmm. maybe they'll use that for birds be able to use that for birds at some point yeah i suppose they can just use lots of data to track the the livestock um, well-being and stuff. I lived, I stayed on a a dairy farm in Michigan when I was doing research and it was a really data intensive farm and they had automatic milking machines where the cows would just walk in and it would automatically milk them. And they (laughs) had uh, radio collars that tracked all things about their location and movement and feeding and all. So they had massive amounts of data on their milk production and all of their behavior that they used to study all sorts of stuff. That's like, if you watch a show from the fifties and they're like trying to predict the future, like I feel like that's what it would look like. Yeah. It's like a farm still, but then it's like a really futuristic farm. Right. Also random side, side note. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that like the same part of the human brain that is used to identify faces is also used to identify bird species. Have you heard this? Oh, no, I don't know. I I read it or something, but I don't remember what the source is, so I can't confirm. But <laughs> it's uh, yeah, patterns. I'm yeah. not very good at recognizing people, but I'm good at identifying birds. So <laughs> hmm. maybe it's a trade off to how much you invest in one or the other. <laughs> yeah, I guess the idea would be that you would either, if you're not able to do one, then you would also not be able to do the other. But okay, I don't know. So people with face blindness would be bad bird watchers. That would be, yeah, that would, yeah, exactly. That seems testable. Yeah. Let's do it next time. Okay, (laughs) go go on. Uh, So yeah, they captured 12 owls and they'd bring them, at one time, they'd bring one owl into this little flight tent. It's basically like the size of a bedroom. Let it hang out there for a night, get used to it. And during the hunting trials, they'd have no visible light, but they'd have UV light that they could use UV cameras to monitor their behavior. And so for the experiments, they went out and recorded sound from these compressors using a shotgun mic and um, they would uh, they recorded it at different distances so they captured sort of the nuances of the volume and the frequencies at different distances and then for the experiments they would take those recorded sounds and play them back at the you know appropriate volumes to mimic the different intensity of sound that the birds might experience in the field so to, to actually do the experiment, they, there was a perch in the middle of this tent and the owls would sit on the perch. And then they had this little runway, this little tract, basically, this 
zone of death for these mice and they'd release a mouse into this runway um, that was below the perch and then they could monitor um, three different things of the owl they could um, and each of them were just yes no did that did this happen or not uh, did it detect the mouse so that was just like did it turn its head to look at where the mouse was um, did it leave the perch to strike at the mouse and did it successfully catch the mouse so across all the stuff, that's, that's the data, yes or no, to each of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also then also took some data on how the mouse moved to see if the sound affected the mouse. And then, yeah, then they were able to do these um, statistical tests to see if the sound affected the probability of all of those things, hearing, striking, catching. So it's basically like a controlled way of playing various levels of these air compressor sounds to kind of yeah. say like okay if it's really loud how much does it mess with their ability to hunt if it's super quiet how much does it ability mess with right. their ability to hunt if it's kind of somewhere in the middle like kind of using a controlled environment to get all these different simulated distances and volumes and stuff like that from the air compressor so if they can extract that and be like if it's really, if they're really far, if they're, you know, a hundred meters or whatever, this is how yeah. much, you know, this is when it starts, starts or stops affecting their behavior. Or we, this is a spoiler. We don't know yet if it affects their behavior or not. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at a review paper about the effects of noise pollution on wildlife. And it specifically recommended doing studies where you, instead of just having like no noise, lots of noise as two treatments that you have a, a range of noise Mm -hmm. so that you can see like is there a threshold beyond a certain point where there's an impact or is it just linear more noise more problems you know what's the shape of that and so this study really seemed to follow that um that advice of doing this a whole range of noises so you can see um and also yeah i mean that you know you can then more closely estimate how big of an area is impacted by the noise if you can say well it only impacts it up to this volume or something like that. Yeah, totally. And I imagine it's also probably easier to, you know, from a policy standpoint to say like, okay, you can mm. make noise because if you're just yeah. like, well, noise pollution is bad, so you can't make any, like that doesn't really work in the yeah, real world. Be, yeah, right. So I, I would imagine that's probably easier to enact policy of like, okay, you can make noise, but you have to limit it to this number of decibels or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Good point. So over the whole study, it was over two different years, and it had a total of oh, had a total of thirteen owls, and one hundred and eighty-four individual trials where you know they had the owl there and the mouse and everything. So I kind of wanted to go through all those details just to kind of show how how complicated and difficult this stuff is. <laughs> yeah, just to like study behavior in the context, like how humans are affecting behavior. So to just say if owls are in areas with the noise or not. That's comparatively easier. You can just go bird watching, basically. <laughs> um, but to study this stuff, you like have you know you can't really study it in the wild because there's all these confounding variables and stuff. So it's just very difficult to understand how we are impacting the world. <laughs> totally. Um, so <clears throat> the first result is that the noise did not seem to be impacting the mouse movement, uh, which from in terms of interpreting the results, that's nice. Yeah, um, makes but it, it easier. Did, yeah, um, it did impact the owls. And so the first is that from 
basically no noise or what they didn't ever have no noise. They had a control noise that was like the background with no compressed because there's always some noise. So I, I think um, the background noise was 29 decibels with just no compressor. And then um, the playback ranged from 46 to 73 decibels. Um, so from basically the control up to the loudest, detection went from about 100% down to about 40%. Uh, so the, this noise pollution is bit over uh, cutting in half their ability to detect prey. Yeah, that's not good. Unless you're the mouse. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And the likelihood of them striking went from about 70% of trials to 20%. So even a greater, more than half. I suck at mental math so much, I can't even look at that and see. It's more like a 20 times four, almost a quarter. Uh, 20%? Uh, from 75% to 20%. So it's cutting, uh, you know. Couldn't help you there. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, successful catches went from about 18% in the control down to 0%. There was never a mouse caught in any treatment that was over 61 decibels. Uh, so just total inability to catch prey whatsoever yeah. when there's... Um, the louder noise. Um, also, the so the louder noise you said was seventy decibels. Yeah. So as a reference point, um, a normal conversation is about sixty decibels. A motorcycle running, a motorcycle engine running, is about ninety-five decibels, and then seventy decibels is basically like okay. the threshold for what they think is like going to cause hearing damage in humans for you know if it's extended okay. periods of time. So but it's of, not like insanely loud. Right. So it's not like probably, instantly deaf. It's just like like quieter yeah. than a motorcycle. <laughs> quieter than a motorcycle, louder than a conversation. So like if you're yeah. listening to music in a volume where you're actually enjoying it, you might be, you know, pushing, <laughs> right. pushing something like right. that. If you're jamming, if you're, yeah. re- if you're really truly jamming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Yes, that was good. Uh, yeah, so we're down to zero... No catching, no prey above 61 decibels, which is, yeah, you said 60 was more like a conversation, conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So above the sound of people talking, they're totally have lost the ability to catch prey. And um, in general, all of these results were, they, you know, dose dependent is the phrase basically means there's like, there's not like a threshold. It's kind of the more noise, the more impact there is. So Mm -hmm. there's more like a linear Um, or even, um, some of them I think were more like, um, quickly jumping up, but basically it means that there is a more noise, more problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not surprising, but it's, you know, I guess it's, if we were wanting to go to, you know, manage these things, it would have good insights into, you know, how ideally how quiet these things would need to be to not impact them. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of, you know, those are, those are the results for that. Um, there are some things that aren't quite clear what's going on. So the noise could be either causing a distraction to the owls that they're just kind of freaked out, or it could be that the noise is masking the sound that the prey is making so they can't detect them or find them. Mm -hmm. Some of the results do suggest it's the latter because we see this change in detectability. Um, But I guess if they were just like distracted, they may have that result as well. 
The, they also found that... Also, after two years of these experiments, and there's only 13 owls, like you'd think that every once in a while they'd be like, okay, I remember this. I'm going to just stick to my business here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, each owl got tested a number of times with like different, um, the different volume treatments. Yeah. So they, you know, they, they did seem to be... And they, they, they accounted for like individual bird and all sorts of stuff like that in the mm. models. So it is, but it is still... You can't ask the owl like what was going on. So <laughs> yeah. it's somewhat hard to know. They did look at like the frequency that they actually recorded the sound of mouse steps <laughs> and then like compared that to the frequency of the sound and like some of the frequencies were in a similar range. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would just mask the sound of of little I mean the thing they're hearing is mouse footsteps. <laughs> right. So in in that context it's not too surprising that a conversation you know amount of volume would like you know if someone was talking next to you do you think you would hear <laughs> mouse footsteps? <laughs> yeah. That is also coincidentally the cutest uh, audio engineering project of all time. <laughs> yeah. Like a t- tiny little microphone pointing <laughs> yeah. down overhead mic. <laughs> yeah get the, more gain get more the gain little more tiny gain. headphones on the mouse <laughs> so they can hear their footsteps properly yeah while they're performing it's like oh that was that was a little off tempo <laughs> <laughs> they start doing these tap dances like no no just natural just natural <laughs> yeah. can i get a click track <laughs> <laughs> oh man um yeah no i know if someone is talking to me while i'm trying to do something it is very challenging for me and i also have a hard time focusing in general but like yeah, yeah. it's it's tough to tune out an entire con- like you know a conversation so i i relate i get right. it especially if your hearing is really really good like you hear yeah. everything you like hear the right. lips smacking not that it's <laughs> literally a conversation but yeah i still think it does what you're saying there does show that they don't really know if it's a distraction or unable to hear. Right. Um, I think it seems pretty clear to me that it would mask their ability to hear it, but we don't know what their hearing's like. Maybe it, it, so it, it could still very well be both that they're just kind of like, you know, like you said, if you're just, uh, freaked out or annoyed or by the sound that could just be, well, I'm not going to bother hunting for a mouse when there's this weird noise going on. So yeah, totally. Especially if, but either way, every action you take is highly, energy intensive yeah but in some ways it doesn't it's biologically kind of interesting but in from a management perspective it doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. they're not catching it either way so yeah Ooh, i found a good decibel chart here that has some fun comparisons a school okay. dance is 101 okay. to 105 <laughs> because decibels. we've all experienced a school dance <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, not me <laughs> Never, for example, never, for example, me never been to a school dance. Um, I used to go to school dances, but uh, typically did not dance, uh, which is a okay. I don't know, weird weird thing to do. Uh, stock Was car races, one hundred and thirty decibels. Uh, snacks, yeah, there's snacks at school dances. Okay. What are you? A, what right. are you a square? <laughs> Well, I mean, it seems like that would be the main, You're the like, main draw. No peanut M&Ms, no Cheetos, no pop. <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst school dance ever. I'm not even dancing. 
<laughs> oh man, being a kid is rough. Um, so, so we add the next thing that I have not attended, which is a NASCAR race. <laughs> stock car, actually. Stock car. Um, but yeah, they, um, they use normal conversation as their reference on this as well for average decibels. But they also say background music would also be 60 decibels. Okay. So a coffee shop is, you know, probably. Yeah. A, a chill coffee shop is going to be around there. Yeah. Or, or louder. Yeah. Which, you know, probably hard to hear mouse footsteps in a coffee shop. Yeah. Okay. So the, the resident owl in the Starbucks to uh, <laughs> get rid of the mouse problem is going to suffer from the... From the adult contemporary playlist on the sound system. Yeah. The uh, band of horses playing through the... <laughs> is that a good example? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on their edgier days <laughs> the thing that feels like totally tame and boring um i don't know are they good i don't remember they're good yeah uh, okay um yeah one another feature of sound just in general but also noise pollution is that frequencies fade out at different um they fade different frequencies fade in different ways so basically low frequencies travel further than high frequencies so the attenuation of high frequencies is stronger which could could be relevant especially if maybe it's the high frequencies that are overlapping with mouse footsteps Mm -hmm. that would make closest most problematic Mm -hmm. that's something that could be relevant maybe i don't know yeah put up some uh put up some sound screens around the owl habitat and soak up those high frequencies i wonder if that would ever be a a uh or ever has been a uh, mitigation to these these issues if they've put up some form of uh yeah just throw some dampening. throw some foam around those compressors seems yeah seems fine might get a little soggy out there but yeah there's there's one system that the sound has been studied quite a bit which is um prairie chickens which is i think endangered or threatened species in the midwest really weird cool bird that's prairie specialist and they live in only specific habitats, but a lot of the places are oil and gas extraction sites. And the sound of the compressors is shown to affect their mating mm-hmm. quite a bit. So especially because it's a you know threatened, endangered species, I wonder if there's been attempts to quiet down those places yeah. for the for the majestic prairie chickens. They would, and I'm not being sarcastic. Use... They are quite majestic. They're cool, really nice. cool looking. I'm gonna Google one. Um, they could use egg cartons, but that would be a, could possibly be a trigger for the prairie chickens. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so on a, on a depressing note, when thinking about the effects of these oil and gas, apparently there's been at the time of this paper, they said 50,000 new gas wells drilled per year between 2000 and 2012 in US and Canada. So this is a wide, very widespread issue, and all of these are producing sound. And a lot of oil and gas is like out in somewhat. A lot of times, these are in pretty naturey areas, yeah, where this stuff is happening. So, I imagine this could really be a widespread issue. Totally. And of course, that doesn't even get at you know the other more maybe more thought of types of noise pollution, just like cities and cars and roads and adult contemporary leaking out of coffee shops, <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, there's another study on owls just briefly that was on um, spotted owls, the endangered species um, from Pacific Northwest. And they also found that um, sound from roads. So these were, this were like off-road roads where people were 
driving um like off-road vehicles four-wheelers and motorcycles and stuff Mm -hmm. um and they found pretty pronounced decrease in uh the number of fledged individuals from nests so just amount of offspring survival Mm, that was impacted by noisy noisy roads right also from miller light bottles being shattered on their nests and stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that a reference to something uh the demographic of people who operate four by four off-road <laughs> motor vehicles <laughs> okay they're they're watching their calorie intake from their from their beer consumption <laughs> well uh it's because if you're going to be drinking beer all day you need it to be a lighter <laughs> yeah, beer yeah. you know okay sure the the metallica <laughs> black album uh sounds coming from there i don't know that's a good album i don't i don't have anything bad to say about metallica's black album hey i'm not hating on miller light either <laughs> uh well we've sort of gotten off the rails here i think that's pretty much all i had did you have any other I feel like we should re- on... really wrap this up as fast as possible <laughs> <laughs> for for there's another attempt at a callback to a thing that wasn't funny the first time we said it <laughs> yeah um, um, well, uh, yeah, as far as this, just the whole episode or as far as the study. Yeah, either. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I had done a little bit of a cultural kind of reference to owls. Okay. Um, if that's of interest at all. Yeah. Lay it on me. Cool. Um, well, I'm going to pull it you and start by asking the question, what do you think of as cultural significance when you think of owls? Like, do you think of them as having cultural significance or, uh, you know, just totally meaningless yeah. or, well, they, yeah. I mean, I think not being that familiar with Harry Potter, I think there's a bunch of owl stuff in that, I think. Yeah. And, uh, they seem to be a common thing in just like TVs and movies. If you want to be out at night and represent something spooky, you get an owl head turning around. Totally. And then I'm sure there's a great deal of, um, indigenous cultures that have a bunch of cool uh stories about owls yeah. that i'm not familiar with yeah um those would be the first three things that come to mind totally um yeah well there's this article um that i found called the significance and meaning of owls in japanese culture um, okay. on a website called owlcation <laughs> so you okay. know that they know their owl stuff um, yeah, I but, mean, they invested in the domain that's an owl pun, so right. it's got to be serious. <laughs> yeah, and this article is from 2015, so they're not Ooh. in it for the short term. They are in it for the long game here. Okay. Um, but yeah, they, they talk about how um, in modern Japanese culture, owls are significant, and people wear them as like uh, little you know models and charms and stuff as like good luck and it'll represent good luck um and it okay supposedly offers protection from suffering and okay. uh there's also a another meaning in japanese culture that is supposed to represent um like intellect or intelligence or learning um and okay. it kind of can mean both of those things simultaneously um good and, things yeah totally um and then they also have another section that kind of talks about how it's not not just in Japan, but like all over the world, um, cultures have placed kind of large amount of significance on owls and they have like, mm. you know, meanings and representations to different cultures.
cultures. So they say like ancient Greece, Asia, and America. Um, and they say Plains Indians wore owl feathers to protect them from evil spirits. Um, okay. And Middle Eastern cultures, owl is seen as a sacred guardian of the afterlife. And even it's all as, very positive. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, in Greek mythology, the owl was linked to Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and uh, okay, as a symbol, as a symbol is used on Greek coins. Owls also became associated with wealth. Huh. Oh, here we go. In medieval Europe, owls had a bad name. Sharp contrast okay. with the association of knowledge and education we commonly associate the owl with today. Owls were a symbol of witchcraft. Ah. Uh leave it to medieval Europe to, to <laughs> right. blow it for everything for all the rest of the, them. To be the outlier. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause like a lot of times things that are predators, most predators aren't universally well liked. Totally. It seems. Yeah. Like you have vultures as like a symbol of death and stuff and, 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 you know, even like crows or ravens, which yeah. I guess are not really predators in the traditional sense, but, um, yeah. Birds, well, the, the bad association with crows and ravens is also, from my understanding, mostly a byproduct of like those huge eras of warfare in Europe when oh, okay. there was just lots of human corpses getting eaten by crows and ravens and mm. then they started having bad associations. But I know indigenous, at least North, you know, Native Americans had incredibly good um, and amazingly important associations with crows and ravens. So I think the negative associations with those as more a unique European thing. Yeah. I think. Yeah. seems like it. Um, but that might be, you know, that might overlap with the owl thing as well. That's cool. And then, and then I noticed intelligence came up twice. Yeah. What if it's just the knowledge wisdom? Yeah. They just look smart or yeah, they seem like they know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, they're <laughs> very, they're very calm. They're very like calculated. They have those, you know, the, the binocular forward facing eyes like humans. So they kind of have yeah. that sort of, you know, maybe humans sort of almost feel like they're connected to them and they have these, you know, they have these secrets that they're holding inside and they're not kind of like, they don't, they don't project ignorance or un, you know, they're, they're very controlled and stuff. So to me, it seems like that could relate all connect and relate to how those got developed. Having the most human-like faces of any birds, I think. Yeah. Then, you know, we are the the wise ape after all. So maybe that's a, a reflection of our thought, you know, our self-value of our own intelligence. We see ourselves in owls. Mm. Um, the good luck is interesting, too. I, I wonder if the good luck is, when I think of good luck, it's like something that we like, but we don't see all the time. So yeah. the fact that they're nocturnal, maybe, I think, because, like, a bird that you see every day, I don't think makes a good luck omen that well. I messed up my words, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. You're like, oh, it's a pigeon. Um, That's good luck. And you're like, man, my luck must be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so, like, the thing that's around but rarely seen, it's, like, it's exciting to see it if you happen to be out at night and seeing them. So I think maybe their natural history maybe is a, a cue to why they often got associated with good luck. Just a guess. Yeah, totally. I thought of one more. What about the the owl for the uh, Tootsie Pop? Oh, yeah. How many a, licks does it take one. to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? 
and it had big glasses on. It was, and it didn't have like a, a, you know, the, what's the hat you wear when you go to graduation? Oh yeah. Cap. Wasn't it wearing one of those for some reason? But like, <laughs> like just all the time wearing the graduation hat. Like, you know, I believe jerk. that, but I, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we know you graduated high school. No one cares. <laughs> oh man. He was like, Ah, yes, I just feel like I'm always graduating to another level every moment of my life. (laughs) It's like, oh, that reminds me when I was at my high school graduation. (laughs) Oh, God, he's going to talk about that again. Like, Like, yeah, we heard the spore owl, owl, man. We heard the story a million times. We know you graduated. Good for you. (laughs) You have two opposable thumbs on both sides. We get it. (laughs) Binocular vision, you know. (laughs) can turn your head 270 degrees we got it <laughs> oh, um, i don't even, I don't know if you know if you mentioned that one i it got cut but it made it back okay uh i did have a tiktok video about that so um tight reminder are making nearly daily tiktok videos with uh cool factoids uh and they get posted on our facebook page and on my twitter and one other place, Instagram, Instagram, that are all, all the, those are at naturistic series, except my Twitter is naturally. <laughs> we, I guess we've, I guess at some point decided, didn't want to make a Twitter account and just use my own. Yeah. Who wants to operate <laughs> bunches of different Twitter accounts for the same types of content? It's, it's confusing. It doesn't help anyone. My, my Twitter content is basically always been the same stuff related to this show anyway so yeah (laughs) no no change of content necessary (laughs) and my twitter is just retweeting bernie sanders (laughs) 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 uh not really but sometimes uh any yeah did that did that um exhaust your cultural owl factoids yeah pretty much I didn't do nice. as much research as I could have, but uh, I thought it would be fun to throw some of that in while mixing in with the science stuff. I was I was thinking about like, you know, how f- learning about biology is cool, but also like having the purely scientific aspect of it is it kind of loses a little bit of the the humanitarian mm. side of things of like how how do humans interact with historically interact with uh the natural world and i think that has a lot to do with like culture and art and stuff like that um so i was trying to figure out ways to kind of pull a little bit of the that element into the podcast if possible yeah definitely want to keep doing that i definitely i get so much feed you know immediate feedback from the daily videos of uh what people connect with and it's almost always the things that people already have some association with that that get a lot of comments and views and stuff. Totally. So like when I do, I just did a couple on red cockaded woodpecker, which is like an endangered species that because it's endangered, almost no one has ever seen. Yeah. So it's exciting to me to go see it. But would I instead do something on Spanish moss that like half the country sees on a daily basis, it like does way better. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just how it goes. It's, it's more interesting to have stuff that seems, you know, some direct connection. Yeah. Humans are uh, self-centered, you know? <laughs> there you go. Uh, anything else? I don't believe so. 
we got we our it. we got our next video kind of in the planning phases, but uh, we'll have a we'll have a white clover video sometime in the next uh, three to twelve months. <laughs> Speaking of a plant that pretty much almost everyone has within a hundred feet of them, probably <laughs> yeah, whether they know it or not, yeah. So yeah, well, give us an email if you have a request or whatever, uh, naturistic at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you all in the next one. Peace.